And they're doing a concert on April 24. It'll be in the evening. It'll be uh, here in the sanctuary. Um, and they're also going to spend the night with us. And by with us, I mean like you at your various homes. Um, so, and I think we need a, a few more places for them to stay. There, there's a sign-up board on the bulletin board in the hallway. So if you'd be interested in hosting a couple college students, uh, they tend to be very well behaved. Um, and they usually eat whatever you set in front of them. So uh, that's the, the Tabor Band. Also this week, we're, we're starting on uh, pictures for the pictorial directory. Uh, this is not member exclusive. This is just kind of anyone who, who attends uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we'd love to get your picture and put it in the directory. So there is a sign-up sheet over by the office, or just talk to my wife, Joanne, and uh, she'll get you squared away. Also, as Lisa prepares to go on maternity leave, we have some substitute help in the office. So there's a gal by the name of Joni Powers who will be uh, manning that desk and helping us out in that capacity. And so if you see her, say hi and and welcome to her. And then one correction on the schedule that I missed, um, governing board, uh, you guys are meeting uh, Monday, not Tuesday, okay? Monday at at 8 o'clock, so 7.30. 7.30. I stand corrected. Again, 7.30 here at the church, Monday. Maybe we'll send out an email or something like that. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a good day. Thank you for your word, for your truth, for scripture. Thank you for your spirit. Um, Yeah, thank you for all that you have given us. We invite you here. We ask you to lead us, guide us, speak to us. Um, lead us, minister to us, Lord. Uh, as you lead, we will follow. We love you. We adore you. Um, and it's, it's a privilege uh, to, be, to be in relationship with you. Amen. Would you stand and join us in worship this morning? Psalms 104 says, Praise the Lord. I tell myself, O Lord my God, how great you are. You are robed with honor and with majesty. You are dressed in a robe of light. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Mark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own.
trembles at his voice and trembles at his voice. How great is our God, seek to be how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. And age to age he stands Time is in his hands, beginning and the end, beginning and the end. The Godhead three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb. How great is our God, sing with me how great. You are the one 
Great. 
Well, as we enter a time of prayer, just a couple prayer requests that I would uh, pass on to you. One, the youth are coming back uh, and their leaders, hopefully the whole crew, uh, is coming back from Denver today. And so uh, just ask to pray for them as they travel for a safe trip. Uh, also, that's a lot of car time, and uh, but it also just creates a good space to kind of debrief the, the weekend and talk about what they experienced or learned. So be praying for them. Um, also, Glenn and Loretta Decker, Decker have, have asked for prayer. Uh, you know, she has been diagnosed with dementia, and um, between that and the meds uh, that she's on for that, uh, it's just been just a really tough go of things. And uh, so, yeah, they've requested prayer. Um, they love visitors, so feel free to give them a call sometime, but, but call before you show up. Um, just to, to make sure that, that she's awake and that it's a good time for them. But So let's have a time of prayer, a silent prayer, and then I'll conclude us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us this morning. We intercede for, for Glenn and for Loretta. We ask for healing, for restoration, for peace, uh, for energy, for comfort. Show us how to uh, support them. Uh, show us how to pray for them. 
how to visit them, how to encourage them. Pray for the youth and the sponsors as they drive back. We ask for safety, uh, for good car time. Um, Hopefully it was a good weekend. We look forward to hearing the stories. Thank you for the opportunity to have had. Thank you for another good day. Amen. lost my mic here. Hold on. Mingle amongst yourselves. Check your Facebook or something. So, um, you know, prior to prior to working here, uh, I worked with a, a, a short-term missions agency um, called Trek, and uh, 
But we had membership with, uh, with another group, right? I mean, each profession kind of has a deal where they will, you know, they kind of get together, right? So, you know, doctors have their little conferences that they go to and they talk about stuff and pastors have it and whatever. And, um, and so for us, it was called Global Disciples Training Alliance. And it was basically kind of an alliance or a membership between uh, just between short-term mission kind of discipleship mission programs all over the world. Uh, and it was pretty neat. I mean, there was, they, they saw huge um, uh, growth in these programs in Africa uh, and Asia. Uh, North America already has a lot of programs, so there, there weren't as many as part of this particular group. Um, Europe had almost nothing going on. Um, but so anyway, so they'd have regional meetings, and every so often we'd have national meetings, and, and those were fun. I got to go so, to some of the meetings in, in Ethiopia. And uh, so then all these kind of program directors are, are there in, in Ethiopia. Incidentally, how we did um, offertory there was is that they, they put a, a basket up front, and then every, they'd play music, and everyone would, like, dance down the aisle and then circle the offering plate and then drop in their, their money and then dance back to their seat. So um, if I ever get frustrated with you, I'm putting the plate up here. Um, I won't do that. That'd be horribly awkward. Uh, but it is a pretty neat experience to be part of. Um, and incidentally, ex-Al-Qaeda make amazing missionaries. Uh, there is a, was it the border of Ethiopia? I forget, where, where there are these Al-Qaeda camps. And guys are very discreetly, very carefully doing missionary work to these Al-Qaeda camps. And so when these people then convert over to Christians, they have been trained in basically taking an ideology or, or a concept, dispersing out amongst a region, collecting a small group together, passing on that ideology, that concept, and then having those people go and, and spread it else, elsewhere, right? Um, I mean, when it's terrorists, we call it terror cells, but in Christianity, we call it planting house churches, uh, and so they're just, they're really good at that. Anyways, one of the, one of these leaders at one point in time, Galen was the guy who, who kind of headed up the whole uh, GDT Alliance thing. And one of the leaders comes up and he, and he shows him a picture. And he goes, I want to tell you a story. And he shows him a picture. And the picture is of two men, uh, you know, like in a worship service, uh, hands, you know, they're holding their, their arms up. Some, some people do that. Uh, so he's just these two men worshiping together. But one of them is, is missing his arm, um, kind of at the, at the forearm. And uh, so it's, yeah, I guess they're holding up three hands or, or something. I'm not sure. But so these two guys are worshiping together. And he said, let, let me tell you the story on this. He goes, the, 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 the one guy cut off the other guy's arm. The, I don't remember what, what country it was. I'm not even sure Galen told us. But there was a... A group, um, uh, I, I believe Muslims, not sure, um, who basically went on a, on a small little rampage uh, against Christians and kind of roughed things up. And one of the things that they did to this guy, and I think to a few other guys, is that they, they stretched out his arm and they cut his arm off. Um, in that part of the country, uh, machetes are more popular. I... I've worked with machetes. I think it'd be a little bit tough to, to take off a guy's forearm with a machete uh, unless you really hacked at it for a while. 
Uh, my guess is that, that you need something uh, with a little bit of weight, something more like uh, an axe, I think, would, would be a little bit better suited um, for that kind of work. What was interesting, though, is that this guy who lost his arm recognized some of the guys that were in the group. And he knew that both of them had kids going to the same school. And so this guy who lost his arm, who was a Christian, and his family identified this other family and then just started showing them phenomenal acts of compassion, kindness, uh, dropping off gifts, uh, that kind of thing. And one day, kind of in bewilderment and frustration, this gentleman comes to their house and says, why are you doing this? Like, why, what's, why are you doing this? And they had a chance to, to share the gospel with them. And fast forward, I don't know how long that process took. My guess is it was more than a couple weeks. Um, but fast forward a few years, and these two men are in the same worship service, worshiping together. What, what causes a man to do that? What drives not only just him, but his entire family to pursue another family that created such a heinous act against them and just consistently, methodically, with perseverance, um, show them compassion, show them grace. Um, what drives a man, an entire family, to do something like that? Uh, it's absolutely remarkable. We're starting a, uh, a series on Ephesians. I'll just, I'll just leave this over here. Uh, we're starting a, a, a series on Ephesians. Um, I'm not sure how long it'll take us. Probably a couple months. Uh, that's fine. Um, you know, Ephesians is not, I would say, about forgiveness. But it is about identity. Um, and it's about identity. And it's also about how to live out that identity. Uh, today, we're just going to do just kind of a 30,000-foot overview, kind of look at the whole book, kind of look at the setting, that kind of thing, and then starting next week, we'll just methodically work forward or work through it from beginning to end. So today is just kind of, a, the, kind of that 30,000-foot overview. Uh, the book is written by Paul. He identifies himself uh, immediately in the beginning. Um, Paul was generally considered a, a missionary to the Gentiles or just anyone who wasn't Jewish or anyone who wasn't from the nation of Israel. Uh, Peter and, and others um, at that time were, were missionaries to Jewish people, but for Paul, it was, it was the Gentiles. Uh, and he opens with these words. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul immediately identifies himself as an apostle by the will of God. Uh, interestingly, this is the only thing that he really uses to, to, to kind of give himself authority, to clarify his authority. Paul had a remarkable resume. In a couple other books, he references uh, his education, some of his life experience, some of what uh, has gone on. Um, but here, all he just says is that, you know, he's an apostle, and so that's who he is. I mean, imagine introducing yourself and just saying, I am who God says I am, and that's who I am. 
the word apostle gets used a, a couple different ways in scripture, but here it's used just kind of as a more general term for someone who's been commissioned uh, to start a new ministry, to preach, to teach, uh, in Paul's case, to serve as a missionary. Uh, he writes it to the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, saints is also um, a, a term, and it's going to kind of foretell a little bit about what we're going to be looking at in the book. And then he includes this line. He includes grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is what draws us into relationship with God. Peace is the result of that relationship. So because of the grace, we have peace with God and we're able to develop peace with others. Uh, it's believed that he wrote it from prison while he was in Rome, uh, we think. Paul was in prison at least three times that we know of. Uh, the Roman imprisonment seems to make the most sense. So uh, it's believed that he, that's when he wrote it. And also this was about the same time they wrote Colossians. The letter is written to the saints in Ephesus. Uh, so um, Ephesus, it's on the western coast of what today is known as Turkey. Back then, it was a, a province in the Roman Empire. They called it Asia, um, but it's not Asia as we know of it. It's just, just think of Turkey, and, and it's on the, the western coast there. Um, it is uh, very wealthy. It was very influential, very hip, very modern. Uh, it was a major center for commerce and culture and religious activity. Uh, because it was a port city, it brought in a lot of trade and travel. Um, but eventually, that ended. Uh, they, over time, they cut down all the trees on the hillside, and then erosion happened, and it just basically washed dirt and silt into the harbor and filled up the harbor. And then it was no good as a port city anymore, and it just kind of died off. Uh, back then, it was considered the religious center for the, what is, is now Turkey. Um, the temple of Artemis was there. Artemis was a mother goddess, a patron of the city. Every year, the residents of Ephesus paid her homage with an elaborate procession led by the city's civil leaders and magistrates, and they believed that by honoring Artemis, the city would earn the favor of the goddess and experience prosperity. Uh, it is not uncommon uh, to find that cities, communities, will have like yearly festivals or celebrations where they pay homage to their local deity, to, to, their, to their local gods, and just kind of once again sort of offer themselves uh, in submission to their local gods, uh, which in the spiritual realm is, yeah. Uh, anyways, um, the temple also served as a huge bank. Uh, because it was such a sacred spot, it was believed no one would attack it. And so lots of people kept their money there. Um, the temple was capable of doing loans to individual cities and even small nations. So um, big hotspot in regards to, to commerce. Uh, you may have seen pictures of the Parthenon of Athens, kind of a rectangular building, bunch of pillars. It was shaped like that, but it was four times bigger. Uh, now it's just ruins. Um, that temple was one of the historic seven wonders of the world. Um, and today Ephesus stands like it did back then. Uh, no modern city was ever built on it. So if you go there, you'll just see trees and grass and rocks and ruins and fragments of temple and daily living. So uh, Ephesians is a very unique book in, in the New Testament. Uh, you know, within the New Testament, we have 27 books. The first four are the Gospels, right? So those are different accounts 
of Jesus's life. They had different authors. They had different audience, so they've got a different tone. You have the book of Acts, which is basically is just a chronological description of the early day of the church. And then you have a whole bunch of letters, just someone writing to someone else. And uh, except for, I mean, Revelation is prophecy, and that gets a little weird with dragons and stuff. But, um, but the rest are just letters. And the scholars brilliantly just divide them up into two groups, those written by Paul and those written by everybody else. Uh, that's kind of the, the best classification they come up with. So they use fancy letters like Pauline epistles and general epistles. But one of the things that makes Ephesians so different is its tone. Uh, in most of Paul's letters, he's writing, you know, about a particular problem. Uh, you know, they're, they're acting up, they're doing horrible things. And so in many of his letters, you know, he's responding to a crisis. He's responding to a question. He's, he's responding to something gone wrong. Uh, not so in the book of Ephesians. Um, it's, it's very generic. He's just, he talks about identity and grace. He, he kind of floats above all, all the kind of sins and struggles of the church. And it's, and it's very positive. Uh, a lot of people like Ephesians. Samuel Coleridge called it the divinest composition of man. John, it was John Calvin's favorite book. Um, uh, one guy called it the crown of St. Paul's writing. Uh, another guy, the quintessential Paulinism. Uh, at MB Mission, our general director used this as his template for spiritual warfare, a spiritual authority. Uh, but m- my favorite endorsement, though, comes from a grandma I've never met. Um, one, of, one of our staff, a lady by the name of Esther Corbett, um, resourced us in the area of prayer. Very good, very knowledgeable, very talented. But when she was younger and she was having a bad day or she was grumpy or stuff was just going wrong, her grandma, rather than console her, would just say, just go to your room and read Ephesians. Just, every time she had a bad day, just go to your room and read Ephesians. So um, there you go. Grandma, who you've never met, says it's a good book. In a lot of Paul's letters, he has, a, he has a basic pattern. He talks about a doctrine or he talks about identity. And then he talks about living it out, right? So we have some theology and then we have the practical application, kind of the basic division. Uh, Ephesians follows the, the same pattern and I would say has probably about three basic parts. The first three chapters are identity. Who are you in Christ? Then he spends a little bit of time talking about how you interact with the world. And then he spends the last little bit on how you interact with with the enemy. Uh, Watchman Nee was a a very influential pastor uh, in the Chinese kind of underground church back when church would get you prison time and torture and that kind of thing. Wrote a very good uh, little commentary on it called Sit, Walk, and Stand. And we're going to kind of follow a, a similar pattern in, in that the first part of the book is sit and that you are seated in Christ. And it talks a lot about just identity and your establishment in Christ. After that foundation has been laid, then he talks about walk. And you'll see the word walk used several times. How you used to walk, how you walk in the world, your, your interactions. And then there's a few little things at the end on stand, how you stand against the enemy. The first part, um, Ephesians 1 uh, through the middle of chapter 3, um, is sit. Uh, and it, it, the theme verse for this section, as we're kind of going through this section over the, the next few weeks, is Ephesians 2, 6. 
And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the King James. Uh, the ESV, the NIV are very similar. And raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The NIV and the ESV add a little bit of clarity uh, on something that, that the King James is not quite as clear as. But that's verb tense. Look at the verb tense on sit. It's seated in the heavenly places. It's past tense. It has already happened. Um, but, but we're not in heaven yet. I mean, just I mean, I hate to point out the obvious, but we're still on earth. And yet, past tense, we have been seated with Christ. So how do you past tense have been seated, but yet presently are are still kind of stuck here for a few more years? Um, The Christian life does not begin with do. The Christian life begins with done. Uh, We are an anxious, restless people. Um, uh, We believe in in getting things done. You know, in, in North America, we have our own little proverbs, right? Little sayings of wisdom about how we believe things work, and and we have a lot about time, a lot about money, things like he who has the gold makes the rules, or time is money, or uh, the proof is in the pudding, the end justifies the means, uh, cash is king, right? So we're we're all about getting stuff done. We we value results. We value bottom line. Um, It's, I don't know, just kind of a little bit amusing to me or somewhat comical. Uh, Star Wars... Of all the lines that get quoted in Star Wars, one of the most popular ones that you will hear is from Yoda, where he says, do or do not, there is no try. You know, we don't care about effort. We don't care about the attitude that you had going into it. We don't care if you tried with your whole heart. We want results, and we want to know, pass, fail. Yes, no. Accomplished, not accomplished. One, zero. That's what we're interested in. And yet Paul writes, seated, past tense. Uh, And for the first half of the book, he talks about seated, what has been done before we had a chance to earn it. Um, When Joanne and I were on our honeymoon, we did one of those things where you agree to to listen to like the high pressure spiel to buy like, you know, a timeshare or a condo or something like that. And then exchange, they bribe you into this meeting by offering you, like, snorkeling or, or parasailing or, or we got zip lining or, you know, that kind of thing, right? And it's kind of, so, you know, we show up and they're very polite and there's some young buck there. And, you know, he says he's going to be with us all morning, you know, and we're like, I thought this was a two-hour thing. But, um, you know, and they show us around and that kind of thing. But, but when we sat down for the, for the negotiations, they said an interesting thing. They said, you know, we, we had agreed, or, you know, part of this deal is that you'll get whatever, pesos or snorkeling or something like that. And he says, that, that's done. You're going to get that. No matter how this goes, no matter what happens next, we've agreed upon that you will receive that. So don't let that kind of bother you or, or be in your mind. That's a done thing. That will happen. That's kind of what Paul is going to say in these first three chapters. He's going to say, 
it's done. All right? Like it's just, it's done. No matter what happens next, regardless of future events, regardless of what you say, do, don't do, your identity in Christ is set. You will be entering heaven. You are a new person. Your sin is gone. And then later on in the book, he's going to talk about, all right, now let's talk about ways to walk that out and how to respond to what's been done. In fact, one of Christ's last words on the cross are, it is finished. The Christian life begins with seated in Christ. Um, some verses. Let's look at some scripture here out of Ephesians. Uh, and look at verb tense on these. Uh, 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, one seven, In him we have redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of, of trespasses. Uh, one eleven, In him we have obtained an inheritance. One thirteen, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, two, five, and six, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated uh, us with him. 2.18, for through him, we have access to one spirit, to the Father. Watchman Nee writes this. He says, Christianity does not begin with walking, it begins with sitting. Most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit, but that is a reversal of the true order. Our natural reason says, if we do not walk, how can we ever reach the goal? Or what can we attain without effort? How can we ever get anywhere if we do not move? But Christianity is odd business. If at the outset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to attain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. The very idea that our relationship with God begins with, seat, with sitting or seated, and, and that from that flows you know, rest and fellowship with God, that is actually illustrated at the very beginning of all Scripture. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation story. A lot of people are pretty familiar with it. Uh, you know, God worked six days. On the seventh day, he rested. But man was created day six. So man's first full day was day seven, which was the rest day for God. So God works for six days. But the first day that man and God spend together is a place of rest. For God, he works and then rests. But for man, he begins his entire existence from a place of rest. From, from a day of communion and fellowship with God. Ephesians 2.6, but God raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places. It is not a command to sit. It's not something we're instructed to do. It's not, you know, go sit yourselves or sit down. It's something he has done. It's established. It is finished. We are seated. Then in chapter 4, Paul transitions. 
uh, only after we understand how we are seated in Christ, uh, only after we understand the experience and rest of, rest of God, uh, then are we able to properly walk in the world. But if you rush the sitting, then you don't walk proper. Uh, the learning to walk comes from the learning to sit. It's completely counterintuitive, but God doesn't really have a history of doing the things we would do it. Um, chapter 4 begins with the word therefore, so, so there's this transition. Uh, some verses that, that talk about walking. Uh, Ephesians 2.2 2 already. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Incidentally, workmanship can also create it, be translated as poetry. Meaning it would read, we are God's poetry created for Christ Jesus to do good works. Uh, four, verses one and two. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. 417, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Um, uh, five, two, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love. Five, eight, walk as children of light. 515, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Uh, when we get to this section uh, of Ephesians, uh, we're going to be covering spiritual gifts, a little bit about church leadership, about the church as a unit or a body. We're going to talk about how your sins affect others, how they affect me, how they affect others, others in the church. Uh, we're going to talk about authority and submission. There's stuff on family. Uh, it's a good section. The last section, chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, deals in very general terms about spiritual warfare and how we deal with, with the enemy. Uh, and if I can say this without being too insulting uh, and just kind of speak generally, uh, spiritual warfare tends to be a huge blind spot for, for North Americans and North American theology. Um, uh, when we were sending, you know, these short-term mission teams uh, all over the world and they would come back and we would talk to them, we noticed that, that kind of generally speaking, that the kind of theology, worldview-wise, they had deficiency in four areas. Uh, theology of evangelism, theology of poverty, theology of persecution, and a theology of spiritual warfare. Uh, they were great in other stuff, like Bible is true, Jesus is the only way, uh, unity of the church, that kind of thing, real good. But in these four areas, um, you know, when they interacted with international Christians, they are just kind of behind the eight ball. Uh, so we had to do focused teaching on it and usually got a fair bit of kickback because it was, you know, we're trying to go from zero to 60 in like three days. Um, so anyways, uh, so we're going to, I don't know how deep we'll, we'll get into that, but, but we will uh, cover that a little bit uh, in chapter six. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that, that Satan has a, a different strategy based on location or people group. Uh, for some, the strategy seems to be very much in the shadows, and I'm not here, and I don't exist, and you don't see me, and I was never here, and I wasn't a part of that. Uh, but there are places where it's very much uh, in your face, very confrontational, very fear-based. Um, and it, the, the strategy um, in North America tends to be kind of more in the shadows. Folks, there, there are two thrones at war in the spiritual realm. There's not three, 
There's not 40. There's not kind of one for every different religion out there. If we take Scripture seriously, then we are forced to conclude that in the spiritual realm, there are two teams, just two. Uh, the other team may fly a lot of banners, may have a lot of subsidiary companies, a lot of subsidiary teams, uh, but ultimately one team under one banner. How we live in the world is important. How we interact with the enemy is important. But none of it makes sense, and we're not going to do any of it right until we first learn to sit. And what does it mean to be seated in Christ? You cannot have Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 without first having Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Uh, you must understand identity before you understand how to interact with the world and how to interact with the enemy. Uh, the battle is always for the mind. Um, but to be victorious, we have to make sure that we have truth in the head, right? All of us have some little voice in the head, right? And contributing to that is our parents and our schooling and society and, frankly, just whatever we shove in there. Um, so we have to have that voice speaking truth. The greatest threat to Christians, I don't believe, is demons. I believe it's lies. Uh, when I do personal ministry, personal kind of counseling with stuff, uh, I don't deal with a lot of people like manifesting crazy stuff. I deal with lies and replacing those lies with truth. Richard Foster is a kind of a famous Christian author, he, and uh, one of the books he wrote was called Celebration of Discipline, amongst others. But he tells a story. They, they went to a, a cabin, and they were going to spend some time there. Um, and this was like pre-cell phone. There was no cable. There was no TV. Uh, but the cabin did have a record player, um, which for those of you who don't know, it's kind of like a CD, only bigger and not as much memory. Um, YouTube it. Uh, they might have some videos of it. But, but all, they, the, all they had was a record player. And they only had one record, and that was of the musical Oklahoma. So they just played that over and over and over again. Well, what do you suppose was going through their head for the weeks and months later? Like, don't sing it, but you know it. Like, you're already singing it, right? Um, yeah, like just over and over in their heads. Um, what we put in our minds uh, affects us, and it affects us in a big way. So here's, here's your homework for the week. I don't normally assign homework. Uh, normally I try to have some touchy-feely application, but not today. Today you get homework. Um, first, if you're not life journaling, uh, you should start doing that. We have journals in the back along with Bibles. They're free. Take as many as you want. We can order more. Uh, but secondly, um, read through Ephesians three times this week. But when you read it, just do it all in one shot. It's only six chapters. Um, if you read fast, you can do it in under 15 minutes, maybe even under 10. Uh, so this, I mean, this is not a big time commitment, people. Like, you get that many commercials during, like, one episode of Grey's Anatomy. So you're, you're fine. Um, so read through it um, three times this week. To begin in a place of, of sitting or seated is not to begin in a place of laziness, all right? Seated does not mean no devotionals, no time with God, no effort. It means that you're investing in the relationship, not striving in the ministry, okay? When you go on a date or when you hang out with friends, you're investing in a relationship. You know, you're not like working for income or something like that. 
you are, you have other issues, but um, you're investing in the relationship, right? So this is, it's like going on a date. It's like hanging out with friends. You're investing in the relationship. As you read through Ephesians, look for this pattern. Look for the I am seated. Look for in Christ. Look for verses on identity. Look for key, key themes in those first three chapters. Then look for the instructions on how to walk, how to interact in the world. Third, look for instructions on, on how to interact with, with, the, with the enemy. To be able to live like this guy, you eventually need Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. But you don't get there until you have Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. The only reason that this guy was able to do what he did is because he understood identity. He understood eternity. He understood true value, true worth, true rewards. What this guy did is remarkable. Okay? I, 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 I'm not sure I'm there. All right? Um, but yeah. To do what he did starts with identity. Heavenly Father, our identity is in you. And we need to learn that more and more. We need to learn it deeper and deeper. Um, and I ask that you would teach us that over the upcoming weeks. Lord, you know, all of us have lies that have found a way into our head. I pray that over the next few months that you would identify those, that you would help us eradicate those lies, and that you would replace them with your truth on who you are and who we are and our relationship with you and what that looks like and uh, the riches and the treasures that we have uh, solidly in you and that aren't going away. We love you, Lord. Amen. Let's close by standing and singing, My Jesus, I Love Thee, as we express, as we begin by expressing our identity with Jesus as we talk about our love for him. Sweet.
Jesus.